Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. And Week in Review is a show where we bring three journalists together and I get to question them and talk with them and we talk with each other about what happened this week and help you understand. And I'm so happy to have Seattle Times General Assignment Reporter Amanda Zoe back with us. Hi, Amanda. Hey. And we have KUOW's Arts and Culture Reporter Mike Davis. Mike, welcome back. Hey. How you doing, Bill? I'm great. And GeekWire Contributing Editor Mike Lewis. Hiya, Mike. Hi, Bill. And we are showing you the show because we're visualizing it for you on the live stream, on YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio and you can see the show. Mike Davis, are you on the live stream or are you sitting six feet from me right now? I think I'm doing both, two places at once. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, we'll double your pay for that. Um, And if you've missed any part of the show, by the way, I would have to question your framing of that. Like, have you really missed it if you can catch the entire thing on the Week in Review podcast or Week in Review? Okay, that's the preamble. Let's get into the news of this week. As of right now, this Friday live broadcast, the forest fire that evacuated the town of Index is only 5% contained. Highway 2 is still closed for 18 miles on this side of Stevens Pass. The little towns of Bering and Grotto are still under evacuation orders. The bigger towns of Index and Skykomish are not. KUOW spoke with Virginia Held, who lives across the Skykomish River from Index. She and her 11 chickens went to a volunteer emergency center. It was just raining down debris all day long. It it sounded like it was sprinkling all day, but it was, you know, pine needles and stuff from the fire. Amanda Zoe, you reported on this Bolt Creek fire. Where did you go? What did you see? Yeah, that's right. Um, I was actually out there Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, mostly talking to people in the area, people who were evacuated. Um, The town of Index, which is sort of the westernmost town, or sorry, eastern I always mix them up. It's a town right before the highway closure. Uh Um, They actually have lowered their evacuation level, and so residents have been permitted to return. Right. And and, uh, what stuck with you the most? I mean, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you must have seen a lot and, and heard a lot from people. Yeah, I mean, it was really, I think for a lot of people in that area, it's unprecedented. Um, you know, they've seen wildfire smoke, of course, but for a fire to reach the degree where it closes the highway um, and then, you know, has people leaving their homes, that's fairly new for those communities. Did you talk to people who refused to evacuate even though they were supposed to? Well, uh, sort of a mix. Um, we talked to people who sort of returned early ahead of the evacuation warning. You know, what we heard was a mix of, you know, I want to be here for my community. And then also, you know, that coupled with, and I don't think the fire is going to get here, um, which is, uh, well, I, I will say index is like a couple of miles from the Bolt Creek fire. I think initially there was a lot of concern that winds would push it um, westward and now firefighters are mostly working to contain the edges and keep it from crossing the highway. Right. I know the, the the officials were telling folks it's not just about you. This is also for the safety of firefighters. If you're not going to just think about your own, uh, these firefighters, we might need them to be fighting the fire and and, and, and not helping people out at the last second. Um, I want to hear from the rest of our panel, but uh, just I want to play a little bit from KOW's morning news podcast, Seattle Now, who spoke to a former firefighter, Amanda Monti, who said basically, hey, West Siders, get used to it. Moving forward, we can expect to have more events like this. 
The Western Cascades are traditionally known as this high severity but low frequency fire regime. What we That's what we would call it. So when you do see fire, it's going to be really intense, even if you only see it every maybe 100 years in certain areas, maybe even 200 or 300 years in certain areas. However, when they do have an ignition and when they do have that dry fuel or like um, a significant amount of fuel to burn, then you're going to see these more high severity fires. And we're going to see, it's fair to predict that we will see more fires like this um, kind of in our backyards on the west side of the Cascades, which is which feels very rare and it feels very unprecedented for folks who have lived in these areas for decades. Um, I think it's something that we should consider to be our new reality and then therefore kind of start figuring out how we can adapt to that, those conditions and to the potential for fire in, in our neighborhoods. Figuring out how we could adapt. So what are some of the ways we might do that, uh, Mike Davis? Well, <clears throat> I mean, the, the thing that really jumped out at me about all of this was honestly the fact of how close it was. When I was first hearing about this fire and I'm hearing Index, I'm hearing Skycomish, I'm just thinking, oh, those people over there, but they're actually really, really close to us. I think, you know, my King County life is like Kent to Shoreline and uh-huh. nothing exists outside of that. But this is our backyard. This is actually us. So somebody has to do something about this, Bill. Somebody has to do something fast. Well, you were telling me about, well, what about a, adding a toll to this road? Because Well, it's, well that it's... was back when I was blaming them. Oh, I but see. now I know that they are us. No, oh. no, no. We got to help them out. What can we, what can we do? That's the question. Mike Lewis, thoughts? Yeah, I love the evolution of a them to an us mm-hmm. uh, based on geography. I think the problem we're running into is bigger, obviously. I mean, that you can, setting aside uh, climate change, right, which obviously is, is uh, partly the reason we're going to see these increasingly tense, uh, intense fires. The other problem is where we're allowing people to build homes and where cities are expanding. And we have, I mean, the risk profile, according to FEMA, which is a federal emergency management agency, risk profile is one thing. It's sort of your threat on natural disasters, floods, fires, things like that. But the, the risk threat gets higher, obviously, when you have a population center near that threat. And this is the issue that we have all through the Cascades and those corridors, certainly those corridors in Highway 2, 20 other places like that. We've got to start thinking about where we're going to allow homes to be built. And maybe in some of those places, we ought not. Because some of the, I mean, the, the residents in those towns obviously suffer mightily from this. And they've lived there for years. But we're also allowing a significant expansion of, of vacation homes and other sort of non-essential homes up there. And I think maybe, and that's what we have to then go in and rescue, right? It, it seems that we need to think about this thing holistically and partly is. Do, are we allowing people to put themselves in harm's way? Mm-hmm. Amanda, any more thoughts? I know that the, the, the county, all these, all, all our region is thinking about how, how to swerve on this. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, as someone who's now driven to Index, uh, probably enough for a couple of weeks. Um, Index really is super close to us. It's only an hour away. And then not only Index, but a lot of these towns along Highway 2, like Gold Bar, a lot of them, the residents say in recent years, have sort of become, you know, outdoors vacation destinations for city dwellers, honestly. Yes. Um, you know, they're seeing more people living right. there who, um, you know, are renting or, you know, owners renting out their properties. So it really is, I think, a region that is near and dear to a lot of Seattle's heart. Um, and then in terms of wildfire preparedness, 
you know, this has been highlighted by King County's wildfire risk reduction strategy, which was sort of this document they released it for the first time this year, uh, but also because of this fire, which is that a lot of these towns have one or two roads in and out. Um, mm-hmm. And in the case of Skykomish, which is sort of really facing this fire right now, they, a couple of years ago, their sort of main road that wasn't the highway was washed out by the river. And, you know, there this this issue is being highlighted right now in terms of resiliency and evacuations. People are starting to think about, you know, what infrastructure is here that can support people. Well, I know that Mike Mike has has moderated his earlier position, but you were he was getting at something about this. We all are. We've all in little ways this question that some people have of, boy, this makes it pretty expensive to keep up this area, provide what build an, build another road for this area, so there's an evacuation route. At, for there is a perception among some people that this is a road used uh, largely or significantly by rich people going skiing. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that we should just ignore it. I think that it is significant, though, when you look at the fact. In 2011, they were looking at $30 million, and now they're looking at $60 million. So, I mean, you can't just keep kicking the can down the road and kicking it down the road because the problem is going to get more and more expensive. Um, I, I saw a proposal to maybe put a toll on the road so that travelers are paying. I mean, whatever the solution is, something has to be done. We can't just leave this community out to dry. Um, Sky Comich is in King County. Like, this is, this is us. So something actually does need to be done. And by the way, yeah, I was I referring to a perception, not saying that, that I, I get that Sultan and Goldbar and Skykomish and people have lived there for decades and decades and decades. But I hear sometimes the perception that this is a right. vacation spot. Sorry to uh, uh, interrupt, Amanda. Oh, I was just saying, um, yeah, there are, I think the people we talked to in Index were either young people who moved there for the rock climbing um, or people who are retirees and lived there for decades. And some of them told me that some of their neighbors didn't evacuate simply because they had mobility issues. And, you know, these are communities of different people besides just uh, young vacationers. Yes, yes, and and, and recreators. Um, so you mentioned, Amanda, the, the risk reduction strategy. Basically, it boils down to um, community preparedness, I think, uh, monitoring invasive species that, that – kill trees and make them dead and dry and, and make things worse. Training for emergency response, is that is that the gist? What about prescribed burns? Yeah, it, it burns? really focuses on um, people they say live in the wildland urban interface. So, you know, these are towns like Index, Gold Bar, Sultan, but, you know, also people who are living next to farmland. And it's sort of just highlighting that, you know, they're under a greater risk of fire. Do you think people in the in the foothills want to put up with more prescribed burns where they get rid of some of that fuel? But it's, you know, that's smoky and and rarely, but occasionally those get out of control, too. But but even if it's just living with the smoke of prescribed burns, I think we'll see more of that. Maybe I think, um, you know, that is one of the methods they're using to contain this fire. I do think wildfire smoke is sort of accepted there as, you know, just part of life. Um, So, yeah, maybe. Okay. All right. Um, well, the, the, the silver lining or the good news is that that's probably it for big, smoky wildfires this summer. And it has been a light season. It's been Washington State's third lightest wildfire season in a decade, I read in the, 
in the Seattle Times, and mainly that's because of our long, wet spring. So we have this debate every time. Every time, whatever the weather is, it's going. at least I do, I hear it from others, and I wonder what's this going to mean for fires or what it's going to mean for drought. So the, so the spring brought a lot of moisture, more than usual, so that grows more stuff, that's more fuel, but it didn't dry out as badly as it could have because it was a cool, wet spring. Anything, anything to add on West Side Fires? Did we cover it? I think we covered it, okay. but I just want to say that, again, because they are so close to us, if we sit here and let them burn, we breathe the smoke. So it, we can't have a them versus us like we are all in this together. And if we want to have these Pacific Northwest clear skies that we love so much, this is an issue that we do actually need to address. Yeah, Seattle had the I read that it had we had the worst air quality of any big world city for a day. I think uh, we asked our we have a community feedback club and we we send text to you asking what you think about a certain story. So just a few comments on on this exact topic. Nancy said, "I moved from Southern Oregon to Washington to avoid wildfires." Devin in Capitol Hill said, "My partner and I bought an air filter and have largely just made peace with the fire season. I still love living here. It's a lot." more mild than most places, says Devin, but the summers are a lot more uncomfortable. And Nate in Green Lake said, buying an air filter is now like getting out your Christmas lights in December or dusting off your barbecue grill at the start of summer. And Nate quotes the book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, as saying the Northwest and the Great Lakes area should be the least dangerous parts of the U.S. as we move further into the climate crisis. Uh, By the way, if you want to be in our community feedback club, just text the word club. And here's the phone number. You just text it to 206-926-9955. Text the word CLUB to 926-9955. Okay, did we get it? Should we pause and take a break and then talk about things other than the smoke and the fire? Okay, where there's smoke, there's more Week in Review coming up after a short break. You're with KUOW's Week in Review with our arts and culture reporter, Mike Davis, and GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and the Seattle Times' Amanda Zoe. I'm Bill Radke. School began a week late in Seattle after striking teachers voted to go back to work. They still need to vote whether to ratify this tentative agreement. The union says it won't make the deal public until members have voted. Seattle's school board president said it puts more services, this, this agreement puts more services towards students learning English and students with disabilities. We're just really excited that our teachers have an agreement that hopefully, if ratified, that they can be really proud of, and that is going to help us make sure that we're focusing on the kids. That's school board president Brandon Hersey, but special education teacher Kevin Hiller at Rainier Beach High School says the contract is not perfect when it comes to things like social worker staffing. Especially coming out of the pandemic, especially for uh, the amount of, of childhood trauma and adverse circumstances that many students on the South End and other areas of the city have had to go through. Well, KUOW's Ann Dornfeld Dornfeld told us about one apparent concession made by the school district. It appears the district largely backed off its proposal to move some special education students out of segregated classrooms and 
into more mainstream classes, which it said was critical to comply with federal disability law. The union, though, had questioned the district's willingness to adequately train and hire and place staff for those inclusion classrooms and said they need to see the district's uh, ability to do that before they agree to that change. Let's go to our panelist, Mike Lewis. Mike, uh, what else would our, might our listeners want to know about this the uh, tentative agreement on the teacher strike? Well, it's a pretty it's a pretty basic change. Uh, other than the, the special education students, it's a pretty ba- they're pretty basic changes. And it seems to me like in the in total, those are not sufficient issues that any union would strike over. So I think that this is the union acknowledging that with the uh, significantly declining uh, student enrollment in Seattle public schools, uh, Danny Westney of the Seattle Times has written quite a bit about this. I think that they're acknowledging that maybe the leverage is slipping a little bit. And I think that this represents this push toward uh, a compromise represents the union acknowledging that maybe this isn't the time to push as hard as possible uh, for changes and certainly involving certain salaries and, and whatnot, and maybe to bide its time a little bit until essentially the weather improves uh, for uh, contract negotiations. And, and, I mean, I don't know about you folks, but I have heard from a whole bunch of friends in town who have gone either to private school. A couple of friends have moved uh, into different school districts because they were rather unhappy uh, with Seattle public schools through the pandemic. And I don't know that that is a lingering or widespread sentiment. I'm just saying among people, friends of mine who are absolutely supporters of public school, they seem to feel like this is a deeper problem than what the teachers are addressing through this uh, through this contract. Why, it, why would it be that declining enrollment means less bargaining leverage? I can understand how, in a way, you could think that's those are linked, but less, I don't really know how money. that works. It's less. It's simple. It's less money. I mean, when you when your when your enrollment declines, your funding drops. So you and that is not that's a, you know that can have an exponential effect. And so when you have significant... But does the funding not drop in accordance with the lowered cost of having fewer students? Well, there you go, right? But that's maybe the per student cost doesn't factor into what the, the cost is when you lose that funding, for example. And I, it seems to me, at least from what I understand, talking to teachers, that the decline in enrollment is one of those things that it makes it hard to, when you have a smaller student population, it makes it a little bit more difficult to ask for more money to serve that student population. Hmm. Any other panelists' uh, reaction or questions here? Uh, I'm just waiting to hear more information. I mean, you know, the mm-hmm. the union isn't going to release it until the teachers have a chance to review it. And there are also teachers who are upset that they had to vote after only seeing bullet points instead of actually seeing the whole agreement. Mm-hmm. And the information that was released by the union was extremely limited. Uh, when you look at the ratio of students to teachers in special education, for example, the union has told us what, that they will either remain the same or improve. So you're giving us either status quo, maybe better. I mean, that essentially amounts to telling us absolutely nothing. When you talk about the teacher pay, they said that they would quote unquote boost it. I mean, what does that actually mean? I think that there's still a lot of, 
answers that we don't have. And it's kind of hard to, to come on and, and have this conversation. Now, I did have a chance to speak with a friend of mine who is an education reporter. And what he's hearing is that the number is 7% on the teacher's raises. And I can't report that officially. That's his reporting. But I mean, the it was also not nuanced. So it was across the board. So that doesn't look at, you know, the IAs, for example, who were already very, very underpaid. Compared Instructional to assistance. Yes, yes. So like giving them 7% is not the same as giving a teacher 7%. So I think that, you know, the union is kind of all over the place. I think there are still a lot of answers that are going to come out in the next few days. But there is still a chance that they could go back on strike. Like this, this isn't over. This is still very much a developing story. Amanda, you're nodding at that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say whether it's a real win um, without any real specifics about the contract. But one of the things that really stuck out to me in the reporting um, was that it said that about 57% of the members voted to end the strike, which to me seems extremely narrow. You know, it it seems like it could have the strike could have gone on longer um, based on the consensus among the members. And, you know, like Mike says, it might not be over. Yeah, that's right. The vote is, is it Monday? Or I don't know that we know for sure. But anyway, the vote's coming up soon. Um, the when, when enrollment drops, is that generally considered a good thing for the kids who stay? Because do, does it affect class sizes? Well, I, I think it depends on where the, I mean, the enrollment dropping, uh, it really depends on from in which classes, uh, which students, what grade, and yeah. those numbers I don't have. I mean, we know that enrollment overall has dropped across the board in Seattle public schools. Ostensibly, you would expect that that is likely going to be happening maybe in families with younger kids who are, who might either be moving or they're moving their kids into private school. It's a, it's a little unclear at this point what is driving that. But certainly, so we, so we don't know which, you know, is a smaller class necessarily better? I mean, I think the thinking tends to be that it is, but we don't know specifically where these students uh, were and where they're actually headed. And I think that that's a a very important thing to know. I mean, if we want to look at this in an equitable lens, where in our city do people have the money to actually pull their kids out and put them into private or independent schools? I highly doubt that we're going to be seeing that in the South End. And the schools in the South End are also the schools where we're seeing the students that are being pushed into SEL, that are being pushed into special education, where the schools didn't have the resources to actually support them. And you look at the IAs, yet again, I'm bringing that back, because the IAs are the ones that are dealing with these students, and those IAs are 30% black, 60 percent minority so you know where is the support for them and like where are their voices within this union i mean the teachers union is large it serves a lot of folks that aren't just teachers so it it really is going to be interesting to see how this all plays out moving forward it's going to be interesting to see if they actually make equitable change and it's very it's going to be very important for people like me to see what happens in the south end and to our students over there and to see how all this shakes out as far as serving them Well, next week we'll be talking about what happened in that ratification vote. Meanwhile, teachers in Pierce County's Eatonville School District reached a tentative agreement. So schools just started there this week, about a week late. Speaking of strikes, the concrete truck driver strike is over. That lasted more than three months. It delayed the West Seattle Bridge opening. That's finally happening this weekend. We're going to talk about that in just a few more minutes 
here on KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Another topic to cover before we take a break here. This week, the wreckage of a chartered float plane that had crashed off Whidbey Island was found on the seafloor. Amanda, 10 people died in this crash. You've reported on this. What happened to that plane? Yeah, I mean, it's still um, under investigation and probably will be for a couple of months. Um, based on what we heard from 911 calls and talking to witnesses, it appears that the flight, the, the plane did crash extremely rapidly. Um, it, it was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. And, you know, based on what we know about the pilot, the pilot had done that trip earlier that day, had plenty of flying, flying experience. Um, so it, it's still a mystery and, it, and it's very sad. Yeah, it's it's a such a part. Of, I don't know how many of you have, you know, ridden on a float plane, but it's just such a common. These uh, it's a De Havilland DHC three Otter, which is which is very much a part of the fleet that touches down and 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 takes off from the water, goes to. I think this this plane was from Friday Harbor to Renton, but people, uh, you know, go to Victoria and go to the San Juans and and whatnot and. As you suggested, Amanda, I, I, I saw in the Seattle Times reporting that one of the 911 callers just described nose down, just an abrupt turn into the water, and they're waiting to know more. Yeah, and investigators say that they can't really determine what happened until they found, find the wreckage, uh, which has been a challenge because the plane is essentially, you know, in a huge body of water, and they didn't know where it was. It seems like they've identified, like, a potential structure for that, Um but yeah, it will be a couple of months till we know for sure. Yeah, yeah. The I think one body's been found. The pilot, eight other passengers, unaccounted for. Any other questions or information um, from our other panelists? I've got a question. I'm not sure if uh, if Amanda knows this yet or not. How much information when when they recover? I mean, it's the the you know, if you will, the black box, the recorder on something like that on an otter is very, very different than what you would see on a jetliner, for example, and how much data it actually carries. I mean, do, what do investigators expect to recover and what do they think it can tell them? I don't know um, about the black box on those kind of planes. I, I do know there was no distress or mayday signal sent out ahead of the crash. Um, my guess is that investigators are mostly looking at structural clues. Makes sense. Okay, well, uh, we also, I don't know, it doesn't sound like we're going to know in a week, by the next week in review. This is a long-term process, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they haven't even um, taken out the wreckage yet. Yeah, yeah, in very deep waters and swift current and, and all of that. Okay, um, as I said, the West Seattle Bridge, after two and a half years, is finally about to reopen. We're going to discuss that and the changes that we've made uh, in how we get places. It's uh, not just concrete and steel, but uh, we work differently than we did before that bridge closed. We'll discuss that when we come back after a short break on KUOW's Week in Review. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. You could be watching me right now for all I know because we're streaming this program on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio and you'll see me and you'll see GeekWire's Mike Lewis and the Seattle Times' Amanda Zoe and KUOW's Mike Davis as we figure out what happened this week and what it means. The West Seattle Bridge has been closed for two and a half years, right as about as the pandemic hit. 
cracks in the bridge were seen spreading dangerously, and that major arterial shut down, carried 120,000 drivers and bus riders a day, and we all had to detour through neighborhoods to get back and forth. The editor of the West Seattle blog, Tracy Record, told KUOW's morning podcast Seattle Now that Seattle has been getting testy. And what we've had... And and some blame it on the bridge detour, and, and you can also say it's just bad human nature. But we've had an, an epidemic of road rage. We've had um, we've had shootings even in road rage. Um, it's 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 amazing. I've never heard of this sort of thing in my 31 years in West Seattle. But tempers have flared, and people are just kind of uh, running low on patience. And this is going to be like the biggest relief ever. And by relief, she's talking about the reopening of the West Seattle Bridge this re- this weekend. Record says yes, it's a relief, but she thinks if West Seattle were asked to grade the Seattle Transportation Department? I don't think people would give them any higher than a C. If you're if you're SDOT, they point out quite rightfully so that, you know, this was caught before the bridge fell apart and nobody was hurt or killed or anything terrible like that. But on the other hand, there's there's a, a large current of people who say, hey, why didn't you catch this sooner? Or even worse, some of the information that came out in the early going, apparently they knew that there were some problems brewing and they hadn't told anyone. So when suddenly they detected something that said, oh, we have to shut this down immediately, it was such a huge shock because there was no hint before this that there was any sort of trouble at all. And our panelist here, Mike Davis, Mike, you said uh, regarding the West Seattle Bridge, you'll believe it when you're actually driving across it. Yeah, yeah. I also will give S dot a very low grade, but shout out to them for trying to get extra credit for just uh, doing their jobs. Not very well, but hopefully it comes back. I'm rooting for it to come back, but yeah, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. We haven't. We talked about uh, road rage and testiness, but we haven't even covered the the frustration, the the added time, the pollution, the crowds in these neighborhoods in in Georgetown, South Park, Kylan Park. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was reporting from the South Seattle Emerald. Um, residents were mentioning just trying their hardest to not leave their houses between two and eight p.m. because the congestion was just gridlocked and there's also like reports of people out there having to do more shopping and grocery shopping things like that in their own neighborhoods which also brings up the fact that you know south park for example has been considered a food desert for some time now so you know what will those people do so there was a lot of ramifications of this bridge being closed it affected those residents heavily amanda or mike questions or reaction from you well, I moved to Seattle last June, so I've never known Seattle where the West Seattle Bridge is open. <laughs> wow. Um, How that hasn't that? prevented me from exploring West Seattle. But, you know, for me, living not in South Seattle or uh, West Seattle, it's like sort of considered like a tourist destination almost. You know, it's like I'll bike there to enjoy the beach. But, you know, if you're asking me to come to, I don't know, some some event over there, like that's a that's a sizable commute. <laughs> Yeah, Mike Lewis, maybe we need to give Amanda and other newcomers a picture of what West, where West Seattle lives in the Seattle map, the sort of <laughs> mental map. It was, I mean, it was considered far away to some of us. It was considered far away before the West Seattle Bridge closed. It always felt a bit like a suburb of Seattle, right? That had been kind of the running joke that it was actually it took longer to get to West Seattle than it did to get to Bellevue. But, mm-hmm. but I would say that that. The interesting thing is going to be a couple of things. The folks who live in West Seattle who have been 
declining to come visit their friends. And you know who I'm talking about, all of you out there, who have been declining <laughs> to come to visit their friends as a result of this bridge being closed, and now are going to have to step up. They're, we're going to find out what these friendships are actually made of, because now you're going, you can't use the bridge anymore. You can't call your boss and use the bridge anymore. Everyone was sympathetic. Now you're going to have to get back on that bridge and enjoy the traffic and come visit us for once rather than make us go through that West marginal mess uh, all the way to see you. Look, it's not that I don't love my sisters, Martha and Jane. I do, but I mean, what am I going to do? Take South Michigan to the First Avenue South Bridge and down exactly. Ninth to Henderson? I mean, exactly. love only goes so far. I didn't exactly. do it either. I didn't do it either, Bill. You know, I went to Chief Self High School. I got peoples out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Haven't seen these people since. I mean, it, it's just, it's so much. And and to be fair, there are people that live in West Seattle that have always treated it like an island. Right. Some, of the, some of them probably like this. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. Fair. I think they do. I think For they sure. actually really enjoy this. And I think that they are worried about having to reestablish all of those relationships that they could walk away from. Well, we're still here and we're still waiting on you, West Seattle, and we expect you to come visit. And whether y'all like it or not, we are coming back. Your farmer's exactly. market in the junction will now be <laughs> just as busy as it used to be. Alki Beach will be crowded once again. And it's yes. And I will be one of those people coming back. Amanda, what are you going to do? I mean, you just heard that maybe West Seattleites preferred to be there uh, to be an island. I mean, are you going to go populate that that place and busy it up? To be honest, I really don't know anyone in my age range who lives in West Seattle. <laughs> and, and, you know, I bet I bet for people who, you know, so just moved to the city, that was sort of some of the advice we got, which was, you know, don't move to West Seattle. They, you, can, you can't get there. You won't make any friends. Right, right. Mike, are you saying you live in West Seattle and you haven't been visited or that you haven't visited? This is Mike Lewis. Or you haven't visited friends in West Seattle? No, I live in uh, I live in sort of the inner bay side oh, of okay. uh, Magnolia, and uh, and no, who, who I'm goes to Magnolia? That, that my, no one does, but Magnolia at least is closer. Okay, the West we didn't. I mean, our bridges are lousy, but uh, but they're still operating mm. at, at least as of today. But no, I'm saying that the folks, the friends that we have in West Seattle who have been declining to come over to uh, the mainland, uh, now are going to have to step up, and now they cannot use the bridge anymore as an excuse to not come see us. Right. Well, now you don't have an excuse not to patronize such West Seattle businesses as, I don't know, a certain record store. Just one example. Then there's the question of the celebration. I, I, again, we're, we're broadcasting live now in the noon hour. I believe we're about to hear a news conference to tell us more about the opening. We really haven't heard much. I, I haven't heard exactly when this bridge is going to open, because whenever something like that, at least normally when you cut a ribbon, it's a little different when you're talking about a you know closed down, cracked up bridge. But typically you have a time when something's going to reopen and... People are going to rumba across that bridge. Who's going to be the first one to drive over it? All that stuff. And um, although, we, as I say, on Seattle Now, they talked to this West Seattle blog editor, Tracy Record, who said not everybody in West Seattle really feels like turning this into a party. Well, it's it's celebratory, but it's also um, there's still some some lingering resentment of just the fact that it happened in the first place. Um, and people, you know, are are 
you know, there's going to be at one point a big party. There was a, a community committee that was part planning a party on the bridge, maybe a run, a walk, a bicycle ride. And then SDOT said, no, we can't make that work logistically. But then there was also a very large sentiment that said, what in the world are we celebrating? This is something that absolutely failed and it's taken two and a half years to fix. And the only celebration that we need is just to open the darn bridge and let's get going again. So are any of you early adopters, are you the type to want to, to, to you know, run across this bridge or be one of the first, anything like that? Mm, uh, I, I'll jump in. I, I mean, trust I'm, the epoxy I'm... and the steel cables. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah, I trust, I trust the bridge. I, I don't, I don't, I think that that, what Tracy had to say uh, from the, from the uh, West Seattle blog, what she had to say is correct. It's, this is getting back to, from negative to zero. Right. This is not actually and it's going to improve based on the last two and a half years, but it's not really going to improve based on the last 20. Right. We're going to go back to the same old patterns as before. And the bridge is going to be, you know, locked up in the morning and locked up in the evening as it always was. So it's going to feel very, unfortunately, in many ways, very normal, very quickly. And I hope, though, that the enhanced West Seattle tax, the water taxi, for example, I hope that the other ideas that actually helped get people there and back. I hope some of those can be retained. I like the fact that it forced a little bit of expansion in some minor forms of mass transit to West Seattle. Yeah, the water taxi was a big one. A lot of people took part. But also, I mean, how how are we supposed to celebrate and be first, Bill, when they won't even give us a date and a time that's concrete? Like, I'm waiting. Camp out. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm waiting for that time. By the way, if I were a stand-up comedian, I would say, hey, they used 46 miles of steel cable to strengthen the concrete. Why not just make the bridge out of the steel? Am I right? I'm not going to say that. Um, yeah, we're waiting to find out when that's going to happen. Okay, party or not, it's up to you. What's going to happen to our – did you see the T-shirts? The, they had a T-shirt contest. There was Mind the Gap. West Seattle Island was nice. Accidental Island, it's being called. But all anyway, all that's going to be cleared away, and we'll see how it goes uh, this weekend. Which brings me to the Mike Lewis. You've referred to people making other plans, finding other ways besides the West Seattle Bridge. As I said, this crack up, this closure happened just as a pandemic was hitting us, and you were very interested in a Seattle Times story this week about Seattle turning into America's number two big city for remote work. Uh, uh, through the pandemic. Yeah, this is, I think, going to be one of those things. As we talk about West Seattle and folks coming back into work, and some of those, many of those folks worked in, in downtown, we've also got the issue of, of remote work. And West Seattleites, and certainly, and everyone else benefited uh, from being able to stay home during the pandemic and managed, and many companies even thrived during that period of time. But a lot of businesses connected to that massive amount of people that would come to downtown every day those businesses failed during the pandemic and they have not come back because the people haven't come back. I mean, Zillow effectively emptied out an entire skyscraper and has zero plans to return that many people to, uh, to a skyscraper. So what the downtown recovery, which has been a big issue, it certainly was a campaign issue for Mayor Harrell. The downtown recovery is to some degree linked to people coming back to work and Seattle is doesn't appear to be ready to do that is the number two city. The number one city in the country is Washington, D.C. And that's largely because it's a city that is funded by the federal government, right? Seattle is a different thing entirely. And it's going to be 
an interesting pattern of recovery in downtown, or maybe just a change in the way downtown actually is perceived uh, while we figure out these things that were linked to people coming into downtown that are now have been delinked, whether or not those are ever going to come back at all. I do want to underline that this this was based on census data that from 2019 to 2021. So this is, so to speak, in the rearview mirror. Um, but but as of 2021, this uh, this census data said that the number of Seattle workers who primarily worked from home went from 36,000 to 205,000, which is almost go. half of everybody, who workers who live in the city. The number who commuted by car fell by a third from 205,000 down to 142,000. So making remote, remote work m- a much more um, used way of, quote unquote, commuting um, than compared to driving in this town. Any other reaction? Yeah, yeah go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and if you talk to the people who are the people, chief people officers at places like Expedia or Zillow, I mean, they're, they are, or Microsoft, they are doing all kinds of things about a hybridized workforce. So I think that's what we're going to see a lot of. People will return to that area. There'll be less fully remote work, but there's going to, I don't think the idea that remote work is going away. I think that Seattle is going to stay a leader uh, in the remote work environment. By the way, in case you thought a big drop in driving would mean a surge in public transportation or bicycling or walking, uh, not true. Just to take transit, the numbers had a showed a 76% drop in using transit to commute. Now, I don't know what I don't know how accurate these numbers are. I mean, you can't even tell who's paid to get on on transit. I don't know what what accurate numbers we have. I will tell you anecdotally, my bus and trains that I'm taking are are, are again this is in the rearview mirror those the, those are really starting to fill up yeah i mean it's it's hard to say though bill i mean it seems like not a lot of people just switched how they commute it was just a lot of people stopped commuting yes. and i think that work from home thing was interesting to unleash on seattle just with the seattle freeze and just the the nature of our city i'm not surprised that people love to work from home and to not have to go be around a bunch of people passive aggressively but it it, <laughs> it will be interesting though are you saying you don't want to be six feet from me right now well you yes oh, okay you. it's other everybody people. else other people yeah. i get it but i mean it, it is interesting as we move forward you know the mayor really did campaign really heavily on downtown recovery what it's going to mean when you don't have people coming downtown and spending money down there every day for our city. But also, does this mean that people are spending more money in their own neighborhoods? So instead of, you know, going out to eat for lunch at work downtown, are they eating at more local establishments in the communities? So, I mean, I think there could be a silver lining to all of this, but I think time will tell. Yeah, I think discussions over remote work, it always makes me just think about the population we have and affordability. Uh, Because, you know, in that same data set, they said nationally in 2021, 18% of all workers work primarily from home. And I I guess I've always always considered working from home to be sort of a white collar knowledge worker experience. So I guess that just makes me think about the kind of workers we have in Seattle, um, you know, and who lives where. Yeah, I also would say, too, that Seattle is interesting in the fact that we were like ground zero for COVID in the United States. Like those first cases were here. So as things shut down, I think our population of people were the most worried. 
Um, you can see Bill still has his mask around his neck. Mine Always. is right next to me. So, like, you know, we're so cautious in our city that I think that does play a part. But I am curious to hear from Mike Lewis. I mean, do you think the tech industry will be successful in getting people to come back? Because in a lot of ways, I think that's what's going to lead the charge in Seattle if there is a charge to be led. It depends on the tech company, right? I mean, Amazon has been pushing very hard and then had to back off. I, that, that's It's a really good question. My guess is no, they won't be successful in getting people back. The, when I spoke with a whole bunch of recruiters right now, they said that when they get, if you're looking to hire top talent, now, of course, the job market can change and people can change their attitudes about taking a new job. But the recruiters told me across the board that it is impossible to get people without offering at least the possibility of some hybridized form of remote work, if not fully remote right now. Now, this, these things could, can always change, but I don't think the tech industry is going to be able to, as you, I think, said earlier in the, in the show, Bill, perhaps uh, put the, the toothpaste back in the tube. It is that remote work thing, I think, and, and like you said, Amanda, regarding white-collar jobs, uh, I don't think, I think it's here to stay, and I think it's going to be a portion of every tech company's workforce is going to be remote at this particular juncture. So if it becomes indefinite, does it have to mean boarded up windows and, you know, or can it just be, well, I guess um, places that were heavy commute spots, downtown areas, were, that they're not going to support retail. Those are going to be housing units or something. Does it, does, do we, can we just shift, as Mike said, maybe people are, they're eating in their neighborhoods. We're just going to move things around. I do think I mean, it, the purpose of downtown is going to have to be somewhat reimagined. You know, I, I agree that remote work is here to stay and people really value it when they're looking for jobs. That's a that's a can of worms that I don't know how to open, Bill. Yeah. Can people afford to live downtown? If we turn that into housing, who can who can be there? Hmm. Well, OK, we'll we'll pause on that. And Mike Lewis, did we cover it? That was uh, something you, you were really interested in. Well, I, I think so. Here's the funny thing, though. I would I would add this one extra layer of, of worry, <laughs> if I oh, can. Great. So the fastest growing neighborhood in Seattle for a few years was downtown yeah. Seattle. Down, I don't think there's 80,000 people there or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Those people also depended on all of those retail shops that were uh, the outgrowth of the downtown migration, but also all of the workers who would come into town every day. And so you're going, you're when those people are still living there. Yeah. Those people are going to be disproportionately affected by, I mean, try and find a, you know, a, a more than one supermarket. I mean, the target downtown effectively is a supermarket. There's a whole Foods sort of on the edge, but it is one of those places that's going to be affected by those workers not coming in because it means a lot of other retail that the locals were using, that the residents were using also is going to dry up. Right. Okay. Long-term story there. We're, we're covering the week gone by on KUOW's Week in Review. Uh, that's Mike Lewis from GeekWire. We've got Mike Davis from KUOW and Amanda Zoe from the Seattle Times. We've got uh, four minutes left in the show, which gives us some time to leave you something to smile about. We always uh, end the show that way. My little contribution, and this is a modest contribution this week, but KUOW's daily newsletter today so far informed us that this week marked the all-important all important, 208th anniversary of the writing of our national anthem. Wait a minute. Is that right? Yeah, that must be right. Uh, 208. Thank you for that, Bernard Wallat, our engineer. And this gives me the excuse to share 
a story that has been told in my family for generations. Hope you're all standing. This story is that an American prisoner of war named Henry Penny, brother of my father-in-law's great-great-great-grandfather, Josiah Penny, gave Francis Scott Key the piece of paper upon which he wrote his poem that became the Star-Spangled Banner. You laugh. Thank you. It's a solemn moment. This is what... This is what this is family legend. So I'm feeling pretty excited about that. I am aware, by the way, the Wikipedia account says that Francis Scott Key wrote the poem on the back of a letter he had in his pocket. Well, maybe Henry wrote the letter and handed it to him. I don't know. Let's not distract ourselves from uh, from my family lore. And so that that there's something I'm smiling about. How about anybody else? That's as happy as it gets, huh? That's as happy as you. You, you trumped all the stories. Josiah's brother. That's it. I mean, you know, maybe. Uh, I'm so scared to say this, but uh, the Seattle Mariners. Oh, man, go man. ahead. Go ahead. I'm so afraid to let myself be a fan again. I want to be. Don't say it. So much heartbreak, but you know, maybe, maybe they're going to make the playoffs. That's barely a maybe, right? I mean, that would have to. That would be the most epic collapse in majors. In would you be history. surprised? <laughs> would you be surprised? Because I wouldn't be surprised. So you know what? I'm going to take that back. What makes me smile is the Seahawks beat the Broncos. Russell Wilson came home. He got booed, and he went home a loser in his shiny suit that he still had to wear in that loser press conference. That <laughs> That made me smile. <laughs> yes, let's stand for that. I saw that visual. Yeah, he, boy, uh, wow, where was his change of clothes? He was confident. So he must confident. have been confident going so in. Confident. Amanda or Mike Lewis, anything to smile on the way out? Yeah, um, I have been enjoying the all things pumpkin season. Um, mm-hmm. Had a friend say that in September, you either have to get excited about Halloween, spiral into seasonal depression, or get excited about the pumpkins. What's it going to be? It's pumpkins today. Is it pumpkin spice? Is it pumpkin spice, or do you eschew pumpkin spice? You, you know, I'm I'm open to all the gourds okay. and all all the varieties. Nice, all the gourds. How about you, Mike? You know, I got to say, I'm actually pretty happy about the. This is going to sound. I know we covered this already, but I'm pretty happy about the West Seattle Bridge opening, mainly <laughs> oh, because uh, your friends. Well, I, I did have friends that I that I won't even recognize at this point. It's been mm. so long since I've seen them. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it will take the pressure off the like when I, I do a lot of cycling, and I think that it's been it'll be nice to see people. Some of those people who are sort of very occasional cyclists, it'll be nice to see them get back in their cars and get out of the way and 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 leave the bike trails for those of us who are, who are actually interested in, in cycling somewhere. And so, uh, I think that the West Seattle Bridge opening up is actually going to be terrific having friends over there and having them come over here i think it's going to be great well that's nice you know it's going to be weird signs highway signs with no graffiti on them there's a reason to to go on 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 day one because i can't promise about day two hey that's art that's art bill we love art here we love art we are we and you know no one loves it more than arts and culture reporter Mike Davis from KUOW here and GeekWire's contributing editor Mike Lewis and Seattle Times general assignment reporter Amanda Zoe. It's been a pleasure uh, having you be our Week in Review. Thanks so much, team. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. And I want to thank, you know, uh, we we got just the right music at just the right time, and it always happens that way when KOW's Bernard Ouellette is running the board. And thanks to Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza for social media and live streaming support. And thank you for listening. And let's just do this again in a week. We can review. I'm Bill Radke. Have a great week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, 
Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.